Welcome to the Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You are with Mike. And you're with Ian. And we are, as always, weeding through the Patrick O'Brien Aubrey Matron canon. Ian, we're just about to hit halfway in the Yellow Admiral. Can you bring us up to date, please, sir? With great pleasure, Mike. Last time, Jack had been dressed down by Admiral Stranraer for returning late for his part in the enclosure vote and for what the Admiral thought of as the poor sailing of the Bellana. The Bellana had therefore been demoted to, to ensure squadron duty, as the Admiral put it, to learn to sail better and with the hope that its inept presence will cause the French to come out. The Admiral, meanwhile, had asked Stephen to convince Jack to support enclosure, saying that Jack might need a friend soon. And Stephen had suggested that Jack should consider the Cochrane route of going and working with the Chilean Navy. And meanwhile, had asked to be set ashore at the dark of the moon for an intelligence mission. So, Mike, that was then. This is now. This chapter, we have disasters of old in treacherous waters off of Brest. We have music with a delightful new youngster. We have left-handed instruments, a great gun exercise, skylarking, an unexpected turn, and an anxiety-filled parting in the dark. Lots and lots, Mike, to get stuck into in this chapter. Shall we get straight into it? Oh, let's do. Yeah, absolutely. Quite a chapter. Well, you know, as we join our heroes, they've been sailing up and down this bay for five days, and they've got the ringle off looking into the harbor and nearby inlets. And we find Jack, Stephen, Lieutenant Harding, and Captain Temple of the Royal Marines, along with the purser, Mr. Paisley, enjoying coffee on the poop deck after their wardroom dinner. Now, mm. Jack points out the pen marks to everybody, this very dangerous reef, and he drops in a little Aubreyism. He says, Scylla and Charybdis ain't in it, nor the Gargonzola. And we <laughs> love having Jack mistake the Greek mythical figure Gorgon for an Italian cheese. Um, so this Aubreyism, a yeah. little bit Freudian, you know, sometimes it's a scar, sometimes it's a block of cheese here. Well, he points to Penmark Head beyond the reef and to Harding Jackson's Lord. That must have been a rough, wild night of it. And I'll tell you, this chapter is going to have a lot of this coastline off of Brest and the seas and lots of journey. So we highly recommend you zoom in on Tom Horn's brilliant website, cannonade.net, and, and maybe mm. click on the satellite view for Google Maps there as you, as you follow this journey. So we had this Scylla and Charybdis classical myth. We visited this once before. Scylla, a great sea monster at the foot of a cliffs opposite this fearful whirlpool, Charybdis. In you know, it's kind of Homer's version of a rock and a hard place. In the Odyssey, right. acting on the advice of Circe, yeah, Odysseus navigates the straits between these two bikes, sailing very close to Scylla and loses six of his men to Scylla's six heads rather than, you know, sailing the other way to the whirlpool and losing the entire ship. Let's hope Jack is not going to be facing a similar choice in these treacherous waters. Mm, setting ourselves up for lots of jeopardy and lots of hard choices here right at the beginning of the chapter. Well, we can't just let that sit there. We have to get some explanation about which particular wild night it must have been. And Harding says, you're right, I, I wouldn't ever wish to see another like it. And assuming that Stephen is in on the event that they're talking about, Jack turns to him and says, surely you know about the droit de l'homme, the rights of man, in other words. And Stephen says, well, yes, few things are more familiar to me than this amenable fiction. And he starts talking about alternate versions that he had written in his youth. And he gets a smile and a friendly kind of wink from the sailors who say, actually, Doctor, he means the man of war. So Droit de l'Homme was the name of a French 74-gun man of war uh, named at the time of peak revolutionary fervor in France. Also, by the way, at the time of Osher's expedition to Ireland that we've spoken about before. And for good reasons then, Stephen absolutely remembers the French attempt to land troops in Ireland back as early as 1796, just prior to the Irish uprising of 1798. And he says, okay then, Harding, tell us the story. Now, Jack and Harding are referring to 
a real action in January 1797 that led to the shipwreck of that French 74 and also of a British frigate. We'll come to that in a second. And O'Brien describes the action that took place. He describes the wild stormy weather and the outcome, the tragic outcome, pinpoint perfection. He's got the, the historical record dead on here. He also attributes the British success to somebody that we've heard about before in these books. That's Captain Edward Pellew, captain at that time of the heavy frigate Indefatigable. And Mike, there, there are a couple of things that are interesting about this, besides the fact that O'Brien picked up the reference and used it so accurately. Um, first of all, there's a double hornblower connection. For all of you out there who, like me, read Hornblower in your teens as your kind of pre-O'Brien uh, nautical fiction, you might well be remembering this right now. In Mr. Midshipman Hornblower, the hero had served under Captain Pellew aboard the Indefatigable, and lots of the action in Mr. Midshipman Hornblower takes place off the French coast in the vicinity of Brest. And then later in the Hornblower timeline, there's a book called Hornblower on the Hotspur, and in which Commander Hornblower serves again on the Brest blockade and takes part in the interception of a French attempt to break out, a fictionalized French attempt to break out of Brest and send troops to Ireland. Now, the real life story behind that particular fictional episode is the story of the Droit de l'Homme that Harding is about to tell. And Mike, the, the other interesting thing that we might come back to later on is that, like Aubrey, Pellew had a Breton pilot, a pilot who was a native of the province of Brittany. And the pilot was on board to help with navigation in the case of Pellew, just as he is going to be on board with Jack. We're going to hear more later on about how and why a Breton might be willing to help the British Navy. That then, in, in a nutshell for now, is what Jack was thinking of. Mike, do you want to just shine a light for us on what Stephen might have been thinking of? Stephen's thinking about this as the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen. You know, same French here. Yeah. It's referred to, you know, in Wikipedia and other places as a human rights document from the French Revolution. Actually, and Stephen points this out, it's a men's rights document. It's a document that if you are 25 years old and male and you've paid taxes on at least three days of work and you could not be defined as a servant, you hold these inalienable human rights. <laughs> so not that inalienable. Then. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, Stephen calls it a fiction and talks about writing his own more liberal versions of it, including ones which have women in it. So I, I you know, I love this thing. You know, O'Brien never to let you know a, a moment go aside here. <laughs> no, indeed. Ah, oh, thank you, Stephen. Uh, but the tale goes on. Meanwhile, in the action that's described by O'Brien in the, in the story told by Harding here, Harding actually puts himself in the hornblower role. He says he was a master's mate on the indefatigable under Captain Pellew and. By the way, Mike, uh, I think Pellew was quite famous for having saved people by swimming. Lots of sailors who'd fallen overboard, um, including when the East Indian and the Dutton ran aground. That that was a characteristic of Pellew that seems to have been borrowed for Jack Aubrey alongside all the other Cochrane stuff. Back to Harding's story of this particular action. Um, he's telling the tale of the French fleet coming out in 1797. They had 20,000 soldiers. They were headed for Bantry Bay, where the French fleet were going to get battered by gales. And he tells the details of the story here. I won't give them all kind of blow by blow. But having been defeated in really heavy weather and close in board with the shore of Brittany here, uh, having been defeated by these two British frigates, Indefatigable and Amazon, the Droit de l'Homme ran aground near Penmark Head. And it was a big story, a big tragedy, still famous in French culture today. There's a monument to the 600 French sailors who died on the shore near Plosivet to this day. And it's in the shape of a menhir, a Breton standing stone. And we'll talk a bit more later on about Breton culture and how it's important in this particular uh, connection. The other British frigate, the Amazon, also went aground further up the coast, much fewer casualties. And the indefatigable herself had managed to claw off just in time in this really heavy storm to avoid going aground. And we get brought back to the, the present day of our O'Brien story when Harding explains why he was reminded by it. He says, the curious green light that he's right now looking at over the reef and over the land made him think of this particular incident. He said there was much the same light then, and this light had foretold heavy weather for the next week or 10 days. 
And uh, this brings us right back up to date here, Mike. The, the next morning, in the midst of some of this foreseen heavy weather, Stephen asks if it would last as long as Harding had predicted as he was telling the story. And Jack says, nah, blows never go by the calendar. Now, who's who's foretelling what kind of doom here? I think I think Jack is waving it off. But very, very often in these stories, when somebody tells a story of seagoing disaster, mm, it, it's been a bit of a plant to be paid off later on. What do you think, Mike? Well, you know, it's it's so true. And, and I think we're going to get a lot of this in this chapter. I mean, we're, we're now getting a lot of attention about how treacherous the seas are. The Admiral's already kind of introduced that in the in the last yeah. chapter. And now we're getting add the weather to that, you know, and we've got the French fleet. You know, is it coming out here? Um, and we're going to have a little bit more going on. So we, we've got to kind of follow this closely as we move through here. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Well, even goes completely against all this tension and ominous signposting because he's just glad that, you know, soon they'll have the post coming in. It's one of the advantages he's heard of, you know, being on the Brass Blockade Squadron. And Jack says, well, yeah, it is an advantage in the summer, but the fall and winter are often filled with gales and winter storms. So we're right back again. <laughs> Jack said, may I remind you, the point we're trying to make, Stephen, is, is that this is a really dangerous place here. Uh, but Jack says, you know, you don't have to worry right this minute, though, because the glass and the humidity are rising and the steady rain that we're experiencing is going to is going to help deaden the wind and sea. And he thinks that they may have a heavy fog tomorrow or the next night, which it will be the dark of the moon when Stephen is to go ashore. So, OK, you know, out of jeopardy, but maybe for your night will be OK. Well, Jack invites Stephen to play the new Benda piece. And, you know, you will have to come oh, back yeah. to you here. Always another you know, a musical reference. We've had one of these before. If it's calm enough after dinner. Mm. And Stephen tells Jack that Gagan, by the way, you had mentioned he can't coil a rope. And I found out it's because he's left-handed. And Jack says, oh, it's not because of a natural inborn vice. <laughs> and, <laughs> no, no. and he says, you know, Gagan, like many of the Irish, are left-handed and very musical. And he says, you know, Brian of the Tributes, the former High King of Ireland's harp, which is so significant in the Ireland and Irish history, you know, used to carry the melody in the left hand. And he says that Gagan similarly plays a left-handed oboe that was made by his father. And he asked Jack, you know, would it be improper for us to ask Gagan to play with us one night? So we have this, you know, Interesting look back, Ian, to left-handedness and Irishness, a new interesting character, you know, really being introduced here. And and this harp, you know, what do you think about this harp? Well, the harp, the the High King of Ireland's harp, the Brian Boru, I hope I'm saying it right, harp. Um, the, The harp itself is still housed at Trinity College. I think it dates back to uh, the, the a king named Brian. He was king until 1014, said to be designed by him. And this harp symbol can be seen on lots of official dumb and also you know, c- cultural symbology in Ireland. It's on the Irish presidential seal, official documents, passports, stamps, um, Irish minted euro coins have the harp on as well. It's been associated with Ireland for centuries and of course, the background has changed color a little bit with the different movements have come along. During the rising of the late 18th century, Wolf Tone used it as a symbol for the United Irishman with a green background and an old Irish crown. And uh, our old friend Paddy Cullivan, who was with us oh many episodes ago now, has as part of his stage dressing that green banner with the Irish harp on it. Now, Mike, there's also a connection with Guinness, right? Remind us, how did that go? Well, it's funny when I read all this, and I'm going, oh my gosh, you know, I didn't realize all this about Ireland in the harp. I just thought it was always a Guinness thing. And sure enough, (laughs) Guinness trademarked it in 1876. So when Ireland decided to use it even more officially in 1922, they actually had to flip the design in order not to violate Uh Guinness's trademark. So I was glad in my heart to know that it was Guinness who helped me find my wife, who (laughs) had the first harp here. (laughs) Oh, well, wonderful. the first, you know, rendition of King Brian's. <laughs> Very good. And I, I love this slightly tentative steps that Stephen is taking towards introducing Gagan here. Jack is 
not 100% sure. I mean, he's not anti, but he's not going to leap into inviting somebody into this quite close social circle. It's not the same as inviting a midshipman to breakfast. He says, I'll take a look at Gagan. Um, he seems to be a modest boy. He's well-bred. Um, but Jack remembers he knew a young reefer who had played excellent chess, even beating the Admiral once, but had given himself airs and become so unpopular in the cockpit, so unpopular with the other midshipmen that he had to be transferred out of the ship. And we go on and Jack watches Gagan as the schoolmaster is with him and the other young gentlemen as they're being taught later that morning. And Jack is apparently often prone to sitting in while the young gentlemen get given their, their lessons here. It, apparently it helps to focus the minds of the learners when the schoolmaster is not a particularly high status individual in the first place. And Jack really wants to inspire them to love maths and navigation. He notes Gagan's modest character, his delight in answering a question right, and his smile. And this is where a reservation starts to creep in. He says this smile would have been enchanting if Gagan had been a girl. He is too pretty for his own good, too pretty by far, Jack reflected. He would be an odious little beast, was he aware of it. Fortunately, he ain't. So that's Jack's conclusion so far of the kind of character vetting of Gagan. After learning what he needs to know, he starts reading through the rough copy of the ship's logbook to get it ready for his clerk, who's coming later today. And Mike, as we're getting introduced to Gagan here, I'm reminded as a, of a flashback to Desolation Island and the Fortune of War. We had another absurdly beautiful young boy for sure who is again the the object quite quickly of profound attention because he's got such a generous character and such a genuine character the the only way you could have made for sure any more perfect would have been to make him play an instrument so my 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 o'brien brain says is that what we're getting here a more perfect version of for sure but my o'brien brain also says if you can remember the story of for sure and how that turned out you're going to wonder what fate has in store for young Gagan. Yeah, it's so true. So true, Ian. Uh, well, at dinner, Jack tells Stephen the weather's getting better and that the fog mm. should be on its way. And Stephen's really happy saying, you know, he would have been really vexed to miss his rendezvous. But Jack hopes that it's not too foggy because even though the Brittany pilot knows the bay well, he has to have, as Jack says, a terminus at quo and a terminus at quem. And Jack, you know, looks over at Stephen waiting to say, hey, hey, did you see how I did that, buddy? Stephen doesn't, you know, doesn't notice Jack's a little disappointed. And, and I, I checked out this Latin phrase and I, I was kind of saying, well, you know, it's not exactly, I think, what Jack was saying, but it, but it could be used to mean a starting point and an ending point. But the uses that I saw today were, were a little different, but, you know, it would work. And, and I kind of thought, well, maybe I'm missing something. So I called our, our, our consulting Latinist, Karen Ruff, and she was, she was awesome. You know, at the last minute, she went back and looked at how this phrase was used around, you know, 1800 to 1820. And at that time, it was used almost exclusively in legal contexts, especially legal documents. And it referred oftentimes to the duration of time, like the beginning and end of a contract, but most often to specify how far something extended into space, like the course of a journey or the scope of a nautical voyage that seamen contracted for. So uh, you know, the light goes on here. Maybe Jack has seen this phrase in all these legal writs over the sea's slave ships, especially those Portuguese ones, uh, you know, that are supposedly, you know, allowed in the Southern Hemisphere. So once again, it appears that O'Brien is using precisely the appropriate historical usage of a term. And it makes sense that it might be a little lost on Stephen, who reads, of course, few nautical legal agreements here. Now, I don't know. What do you think, Ian? <laughs> well, I, I'm pleased for Jack that he's managed to get his Latin references spot on here. He seems to be on surer ground at this stage in the chapter than he was earlier on with the Gorgonzola thing. So we'll, we'll have to see. <laughs> for sure. So Jack tells Stephen that this Brittany pilot is coming over from the Ramillies, where he's currently marking their charts. And Jack, ever keen to talk about his network of, uh, of friends in the Navy, says that he's invited Captain Fanshawe of the Ramillies to dine with them, but Fanshawe is taking medicine. And taking medicine is a very polite, almost euphemistic way 
of doing what describing what sailors so often do, which is that Fanshawe is therefore stuffing himself with rhubarb, brimstone, which is sulfur, and figs and all kinds of other purgatives, and is going to be confined to the seat of ease for most of the rest of the day. So it's going to be just Jack and Stephen and whoever else they can rustle up on board the ship here. They have this great big dinner with his goose. Um, and after finishing this enormous goose and sending the remains down to the midshipman's berth, Jack says that he thinks they should invite Gagan to come and play, to play the Mozart oboe quartet in F with them, and to have the purser Paisley playing the viola. And Mike, our, our hearts have a little <gasps> rise upwards because they're going to play Mozart, and that's normally a signal of something good. But then... Jack reminds Stephen, or they remind each other, that they played this piece together uh, at a time not written about directly in the canon. They had been off of Naples. The viola player had broken a string during the most important passage. There was no replacement to be found, and they couldn't finish. Everyone was thrown into confusion and anticlimax. So yay for Mozart. Hmm, for last time we tried this piece, it didn't end well. Yeah, so... Jack asked Stephen to invite Paisley and to see if he'd like to study the score ahead of time and to find out if, in Jack's words, the boy would be capable of bearing his part, whether he would like to try, and if so, if he would choose to have the score. And Jack thinks this would be far better coming from Stephen, who he says can clap leeches to their temples or rouse out their liver and lights for their own good, of course, than from a fellow who cannot be contradicted, whose prime function is to command. And and Jack says, now, now, wait a minute, you know, Stephen, I don't really believe in all this gold lease or esteem myself another, as he says, pompous pilot or Alexander the Great, little Aubrey. <laughs> uh, but Stephen says, no, 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 I'm happy to do it. And he thinks both the boy and the purser will be up to their parts, given what he knows of their musical backgrounds already. Yeah, very good. So this, this all seems to be coming together. And we, we get another little bit of filling in the context of who these new secondary characters are and where they come from. Stephen says, what about this Brittany pilot? And Jack says that Jan, the person we're talking about, was one of the fishermen that had been picked up after the Vendée fighting. He's talking about the counter-revolution of French nobility and peasants of the Vendée. That's Western France, just south of Brittany. This had been back in 1793 to 1796. And these were royalists who'd fought together against the revolution, but were defeated. And lots of them had to flee. And, and by the way, this is another part of the real world storyline, the French Revolutionary Wars, that was covered pretty heavily in Hornblower. So I'm having heavy Hornblower vibes all the way through this chapter here, Mike. Now, Stephen, whose ears prick up at the idea of people claiming to be renegades, you know, getting transplanted into another environment, as, uh, thinks about the intelligence consequences for this, asks if they were properly sieved, meaning to strain out people who might be spies pretending to be against France, but being somehow a double agent. And Jack says, from what he knows, they were, and they had moved their families to Cornwall. And Mike, it's not an accident that these people were moved to Cornwall because people of, a, of, of the Breton culture with their own language um, have strong language and culture connections with the Cornish and the Welsh people, and, and also, to a certain extent, to the Irish and the Gaelic-speaking Scots as well, because the Bretons and the Cornish and the Welsh and the uh, and the, the Celtic people generally were all the ancient tribes that lived in England, Scotland, and northern France and were pushed west a thousand years ago by the arrival of the Romans and the Vikings and the Saxons and the Franks and a bunch of other incomers. And... It seems to me, I'm not, I'm not 100% sure about this, but it seems to me that there's a strong connection between sailing and Navy life in France and the Breton culture um, and with royalism as well. And we heard a little bit from Olivier many episodes ago about how the French Navy was all a bit of a royalist kind of holdout. So not, by no means impossible that a pilot working on the coast of Brittany would have royalist sympathies and would be quite happy to step aboard one of his majesty's ships and help out the royal navy nice Stephen heads out to kind of check on the purser and on gagan and do his rounds and he returns just before their toasted cheese arrives and he tells jack that you know he saw gagan learning a knot from his sea daddy and you know delightfully asked jack if jack's acquainted with this expression sea daddy <laughs> and jack always a kind man to Stephen, says you know fairly well acquainted uh, Gagan, he says, knows the piece, has played it often with his family, but would like to see the score. Mr. Paisley wasn't sure if he'd played it for sure, 
but he's a very practiced sight reader, he says, as the captain can testify, mm-hmm. and is also happy to join them. And Jack reports that both Harding and the master, who know this area very well, believe that the weather would be all they could ask for tomorrow night for playing this music, unless, they said, the fog's too thick for them to see their music. Oh, wow. That would be pretty thick fog. <laughs> well, it, it turns out that th- th- this was a pretty happy prediction. And every, every time somebody predicts something that pays off, we've got to wonder what other predictions are being made that are going to be bad for us in the future. Anyhow, the weather, it turns out, could hardly have been better. Just a small amount of fog, a topgallant breeze. But even so, as Stephen and Jack encounter each other at breakfast, Stephen asks, are you, are you feeling melancholy? Are you feeling hipped? And Jack says he doesn't like how the glass is behaving, how the barometer is behaving, and he doesn't care for poverty. He's too poor to keep a table. He's too poor to buy extra gunpowder. And he says everyone's going to be astonished to hear that we're going to have a great gun exercise today, but we can only afford two real broadsides for each gun. And meanwhile, in return, Jack says, well, Stephen, you seem to be burdened a bit with the Blue Devils. And Stephen says, "Ah, it's nothing that a light breakfast won't bear away, but he is feeling a bit glum that age has led him to have ongoing difficulties in keeping hold in his head of the geography of this big ship, what he calls this behemoth of a vessel. And Jack reminds him that he hasn't been on the ship very long and that uh, he's mostly for that time been either sick or been ashore collecting African rarities. And uh, there's another classic exchange between Jack and Killick of which there are many others in this chapter as well, breakfast comes in and just as Stephen would have hoped for, it sweeps away a good deal of the superficial melancholy. I just love another one of O'Brien's little prescriptions for our daily life that, you know, sometimes, yeah. you know, just a little bit of breakfast, you know, do do your heart yeah. good and, and your melancholy as well. Well, we get this reported description of the great gun exercise from Stephen and his folks down below. And after it's over, a young Marine comes in, needs a tourniquet, and then a bandage for his leg wound. And Stephen knows that Macaulay's work for a famous London surgeon has led him to do like incredible bandages, you know, marvels of regularity, says Stephen. But regularity was often the cousin to constraint, itself close kin to gangrene. And, you know, we're just struck by, again, you know, O'Brien once again reminds us, you know, that there's a difference, for example, between a ship led by a spit and polish captain and a ship led by Jack Aubrey. There's a difference between Griffith's idea of a well-run <laughs> ship where, you know, he's kind of just this autocrat and rather than having a ship in good order, we're back to the enclosure and the commons again. So love the way he does that. Yeah. He's weaving in these themes here. Now, we've we've had the great gun exercise and aware that the crew is not 100% up to speed with the, with the motions yet of the great gun exercise, Jack asks Stephen about the butcher's bill, about these injuries. These injuries often come in at a high rate where the press men are just learning. Stephen reports on the surprisingly few injuries, including this leg wound. But as he's starting to think a little bit, I think it, his mind might have been turning to maggots here as he started to enthuse about how he might keep this wound healthy. He remembers Jack's squeamishness and changes the subject to talking about the gun exercise more generally. How did it go? And Jack says, well, it went reasonably accurately. It was pretty brisk, two and a half minutes for two broadsides. And he recalls that ships in the past have been sunk with very little firing, losing everyone aboard. And Mike, this is another little you know, toll of the jeopardy bell here. You know, in, in a moment, in a couple of broadsides, you could encounter another ship and it could be all over. They both think way back in their memories to the leopard sinking a Dutch man of war in high southern latitudes. And that, I think, sets them both back a little bit. And after responding to some messages, Jack says to, heart, to, to lighten his heart a little bit, I'm really looking forward to the concert tomorrow. And he's thinking about Gagan and he's thinking about the oboe. So Mike, since Jack is looking ahead to the concert, we all need to go and find our viola strings and trim our oboe reeds and maybe make ourselves ready for the second half. Do you think we should uh, take a short break and then come back? Oh, by all means. (laughs) If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. 
Welcome back. We had Jack telling Stephen he's looking forward to the concert, and Stephen is also looking forward to it. But the next day, he finds himself worrying about the prime performer in this piece of music, the oboe. Working in the dispensary, Stephen can hear Gagan practicing in the nearby midshipman's berth. And Stephen's fascinated. He thinks, you know, Gagan's the youngest midshipman in the berth. He's barely older than the youngsters that are entrusted to the gunner. Yet he has no problem playing very serious music, you know, in the midshipman's berth. And the midshipmen never bother him. And and this is even more interesting because Gagan had been listed on the ship's books of his father's friends to gain nominal sea time. So he had actually come aboard with very little sea time, you know, real sea time and knowledge of his profession. That usually results in, you know, a youngster that's kind of a burden to his shipmates and they become unpopular. They're treated cruelly, the butt of a lot of jokes, but not Gagan. And Stephen thinks to himself, of course, he is a very good looking boy. Perhaps that has something to do with it. One has an innate, wholly disinterested kindness for beauty. Though, so, again, Ian, you know, I, I, I keep thinking like you, boy, haven't we heard, you know, pieces of this before? This has quite the echo in the canon here. It really does, not only with Forshaw, but other characters in the past as well. Now, having heard that most of the reefers have left the berth, Stephen walks in and bids Gagan a good day and asks to have a look at the oboe. Remember, this is a left-handed, a very customized instrument. He looks at it and he praises its appearance, he praises its tone, but he sees that neither of those bits of praise give Gagan much pleasure. And there's this real awkwardness about this poor boy. Stephen Tart's talking about his home in Bantry Bay and the people he knows there and some common acquaintances and the countryside. And the text says, the boy was perfectly polite, perfectly well-bred, but it was clear he did not wish for any close contact at this moment, nor any comfort for his evident anxiety. In the civilest way, he was saying that he was not to be manipulated, nor to be made easy in his mind when he was not easy in his mind, however kind the intention. And Mike, I, 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 two thoughts occurred to me here. First of all is, this sounds a little bit like Stephen Matcheron. <laughs> Like, don't don't come and try and make me feel better. Leave me alone. I also right. get a, a little surge of hope. This is somebody who is not feeling like they're going to be you know, at ease in their surroundings here. But we know that Jack and Stephen have found human connection and emotional balance in their lives through music. And I'm thinking, oh, maybe they can help Gagan to achieve the same end. And that makes me go, ah, oh, music. But then again, Stephen has other ideas for ways in which he can be helpful to Gagan, right? Yeah, this would this would just really <laughs> knock me right off my seat. You know, Stephen leaves thinking, you know, he's such a respectable boy, but, you know, I just wish he wasn't so tense. And then the text says, were it not for some illogical and even perhaps superstitious reluctance, perhaps respect for innocence, I should prescribe 15 or even 20 drops of laudanum. And I'm thinking, no, no, Stephen, you know, after Padine, after the rats, after all your own experiences, the impact on your marriage, you know, this is not illogical. It's not superstitious. This is the universe screaming at <laughs> you, Stephen. You know, don't, don't. <laughs> this is Stephen's good sense, I think, overriding his addict mind at the moment here. Oh, oh. my gosh. <laughs> well, Gagan is even tenser when he arrives at the captain's cabin for the music here. You know, but the birth has, as the text says, done him proud. He's as popular as any boy could be, you know, especially one who's no seaman. And everyone in the after cockpit has helped him brush and pull back his hair, shave, shine the brass buttons on his best blue coat so that they even outshone the captain's buttons. And the white patches on his collar, the text says, put virgin snow to shame. Jack offers him a glass of sherry. All the guests work through this incredible meal of codlings, roast fowls, bacon, sausages, a noble apple pie, and the best part of a cheddar cheese. Killick tells his mate, the young gent has ate 11 potatoes. Go see if the wardrobe left any. And after port, coffee, and ratafia biscuits, I, I understand, Ian, you probably know these well. They were new to me. Small round almond macaroon biscuits. They sounded wonderful. <laughs> they moved to their instrument. Mm, delicious. <laughs> and this is a really happy moment. I, I, many times I've read this and 
yeah, just a smile on my face as we get the story of this group of musicians sitting down together. They spread their scores. Stephen remembers with a bit of concern that the piece's opening notes are just for the oboe. And we get this lovely description. The crucial notes, says O'Brien, come out clear, pure, with no overemphasis, a beautiful round tone in which the strings joined almost at once. And they continue along. They're a quartet playing perfectly together, as nearly perfectly as was possible on such short acquaintance. And again, more wonderful description here from O'Brien. With scarcely a pause, they swam through the elegant melancholy of the adagio, Jack Aubrey particularly distinguishing himself and Stephen booming nobly. But it was in the rondo that the oboe came wholly into its own, singing away with an exquisite gay delicacy infinitely enjoyed by all four. And to all four, in spite of the music before them, it seemed to last for an indefinite space before coming to the perfect simplicity of its end. Oh, it, wow. it, it's beautiful writing. It's a beautiful piece. We'll talk in a little while towards the end of the chapter about just how well chosen this piece is and maybe even listen to a bit of it as well. But for now, let's just say uh, we heartily agree with what Jack Aubrey is about to say as he reflects on how the performance went. Yeah. Yeah, Jack, you know, in, in modern day parlance is blown away. He says, well yes. done, well done indeed. He leans forward, shakes Gagan's hand. What a glorious pipe you blow upon my word and honor. I have rarely enjoyed music more, if ever indeed. And Gagan blushes extremely. So mm. I, I love this. Again, this, I keep forgetting he's just a little youngster here. And before Gagan can reply to this, you know, praise being you know heaped on him by his captain mr edwards the captain's clerk reports that the boat is here to pick up the captain's memorandum for the flagship which you know jack was supposed to read and adjust his rough notes so edwards could copy them fair jack had forgotten all about it we've been reminded all the beginning of this chapter that jack needs to do this needs to do this and so jack excuses himself rushes off to read the final text to edward to write down so they can send it back Gagan stands back to let everyone pass, you know, and leave in order of rank as is proper. And when Stephen passes, Gagan looks at him, the text says, with open affection, all constraint and tension gone. So it's like, what a perfect moment here. Ah, oh, excellent. And Stephen joins in as well. Outside of the cabin, he turns to Gagan and says, that was the glorious piece of the world. Gagan Agrees. He's happy to take the compliment. He compliments the captain and Stephen as well on their double stopping. He says they had glad they finished when they did because he didn't want to miss the last dog. And Stephen jumps straight in with his own kind of witticism, says, ah, a particularly amiable creature, I make no doubt. And Gagan spots that he's missed the point here. Oh, sir, said Gagan, with that delicate kindness the young sometimes reserve for the old, ignorant and stupid, I should have said watch. The last dog watch. The second of those short ones that at the end of the day, you know. And apart from being reminded a little bit of Dill putting Stephen right on a few things, which is very touching. I'm also a bit, a bit cross with Stephen. I'm thinking like, come on, dude, you missed probably the one of the most often retold jokes in the canon and curtailed and all the rest of it. But never mind. Stephen's mind was clearly elsewhere. He's clearly blown away by this playing. And Mike, the, the, the day of pleasure and discovery is not over for Gagan, right? No, no, no. You know, Gagan's so anxious. He said, you know, I love that. It was wonderful. Now I got to go. And he explains that in weather like this, with no possibility of the hands being called, the reefers like to go skylarking. And Stephen says, well, it's not only the reefers. He's actually seen Captain Aubrey and Admiral Mitchell race up to the top and back. And Gagan asks him, who won? And Stephen says, faith, the admiral says he did. But who is to contradict an admiral, a senior? Superiores, prioris, you know. Uh, mm. Senior officers first. It, you know, a little bit of Latin in Stephen's own here. And Gagan heads off to change clothes to race old Dormer to the main top gallon truck. <laughs> so this is all happy times. We've heard about this before, right? We've heard about uh, midshipmen playing in the rigging. Um, we've also heard about midshipmen competing with each other. We've heard about Jack Aubrey competing with other officers, including admirals. And 
Gagan is planning to have this uh, competition with his rival, Old Dormer. Gagan's changing his clothes while Callahan, who's the uh, the midshipman that we remember from uh, earlier on in the book, is writing to his young woman. This is Callahan. Remember, is the one um, that had driven the car with Aubrey's orders. He's the one that Jack had found eating with his woman in Torbay, and that's who he's writing to right now. Callahan warns Gagan to take it easy at first. Many a reefer, he says, have I known throw up his dinner merely from topping it the nimble ape among the royals and togallants too soon after a meal. And by the way, Mike, I, I know that you're a listener as much as a reader. This this is a good Patrick Tull moment, right? Oh, it's 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 phenomenal. The whole scene through here, and especially this conversation, you know, here's Patrick Tull voicing the young Irish Gagan talking about the meal with kind of the older, more brotherly at Callaghan. And it, it's a nice reminder of how young Gagan is, despite his talent, despite his bearing, the admirable way he manages his tension on his own. And that, you know, even though Stephen came to check on him, um, how well he is regarded in the cockpit and just like a kid, you know, he's ready to get out there and go play, go Skylark. So it's just, it's just delightful. Yeah. Now, this is in the, in the background of we're all on the lookout for the weather here. There are frequent storms in this area that they need to be constantly ready in case a Frenchman should try to come out. And that means that for the rest of this time on this inshore squadron duty, there hasn't been much time for Skylarking. So the ship's boys, the young gentlemen, even the more athletic officers have been missing out. And Stephen, who has often watched this from the poop or the quarterdeck, had never before seen such a numerous gathering of people out for pleasure. We have the musicians and the dancers on the forecastle. We've got the boys up in the tops. There are 50 or so of these boys in the Bologna. That includes the officers' servants, the apprentices, plane ships boys, and of course the midshipmen. Lots of them, as O'Brien describes it, swinging like gibbons high above the deck on the larboard side. Larboard side is where the non-commissioned boys are, on the starboard side, we have the young gentlemen, the first-class volunteers, the master's mates and midshipmen. And Dormer is one of these, this fat midshipman that we've heard about. He comes sliding down a backstay so fast that when he lands, his knees buckle under him. And Stephen checks to see whether he scorched his hand. And Dormer says, I'm a hardened old salt. And off he goes back up again. There are so many boys and young men moving around that Stephen loses sight of Dormer, but he does notice this rivalry going on between the gentlemanly boys to starboard and the lower deck boys to larboard. And that's the context for this rivalry between Dormer and Gagan. A boy on one side would perform an exceptional and extremely dangerous feat, and then the other group's champion would do the same or better. And as Stephen watches, he also spots Gagan trying to outpace Dormer in their race on opposite sides of the main topmost shroud. Very near the top, where the main top gallant futtock shrouds diverged far from the vertical, Gagan leant backwards, one hand whipping out for the futtock, the other for the forward cross trees. And here, both holds slipping in his haste, he fell. Fell almost straight, just brushing the main top in his fall and striking one of the starboard quarter deck carronades, not a yard from the officer of the watch. And Mike, th th this is turned on the head of a pin to be in the most horrific scene. And Stephen's hoping that he can salvage something here. Yeah, Stephen, you know, he runs towards Gagan. He's calling out for no one to move him, hoping he can recover him. But when he gets there, he can only report instant death. And the text says, Jack picked the boy up and carried him into the great cabin, tears running down his face. Later that evening, they sewed him into his hammock with 32-pound round shot at his feet and buried him over the side, according to the custom of the sea. Oh. And I was, I was devastated here, yeah. absolutely devastated. And you, because of this chapter, introduced me to this Mozart music. And, and boy, you need to take us through it here. It was just so amazing. Oh, thank you. And... I kind of held off the discussion of the Mozart piece because you can hear the, the power of the choice that he's made in selecting this music after you realize that there's been this juxtaposition. In the story, there's been this juxtaposition between the, the freedom and the exuberance of the kids' skylarking and also the delight 
and the charm of Gagan finding his place as a musician. All of that good stuff juxtaposed with the tragedy of the young life brought to an end by this terrible accident, by this terrible fall. And of all the pieces that O'Brien's ever chosen and ever dropped in for us to think about and to, to dig behind, I think this is one of the really, really great examples. First of all, this Mozart quartet, the oboe quartet in F, is a beautiful piece. The choice is a really poignant one, as as you'll discover for yourselves if you go and listen to the music. In any case, I think it's fair to say that Mozart wrote some of his most beautiful music for chamber ensembles featuring wind instruments, like the clarinet quintet and like the grand partita. I hadn't properly listened to this until I dug into it for this episode. The first and the third movements, the third movement is the rondo that um, O'Brien had referred to, are really playful, really charming. Let's just hear a little bit now of the rondo, the third movement. So like I say, it's very playful, very charming, not bad for a characterization of an outgoing young man full of the joy of life playing high up in the rigging. And then the second movement. The second movement does have what O'Brien described as elegant melancholy, and it is absolutely expressed by the oboe. But it has this kind of hesitating, really vulnerable character in the music um, that's really heartbreaking if you listen to it after you've got to this part of the chapter. So let's take a listen now. So you can hear it really really beautiful even more beautiful because of the juxtaposition between the very sprightly outer movements and this really really heartfelt central movement the adagio it takes a real talent on the oboe it's a real virtuoso turn so gagan was quite a find i think for stephen and jack and therefore even more of a tragedy that we heard this flowering briefly and now it's gone and I'll just bring one last connection here that I was really, really touched to, to, to discover. They buried Gagan at sea at Armen Rock. Um, and Mike, as uh, as I sit here right now, on the wall behind me is a picture of the lighthouse at Armen Rock, the lighthouse that was built long after these stories were finished. But I'm thinking, oh, I'd never noticed that either. So Mike, it, it's yet another death of an innocent, right? Yeah, it, it, and it is fascinating. And I'm so glad you pointed it out because I sit here and I, I, I look at that lighthouse over your left shoulder, you know, every time we talk <laughs> to, yeah. to, to tie this together. And what a fascinating history about that lighthouse being built over the years and the seas and everything. But like you say, not the first death of an innocent we've had in the canon. You know, you referred to Bill earlier. We've referred to Fanshawe. We've got, uh, but boy, O'Brien just endeared me to this character so quickly you know, within this chapter and then reports his sudden tragic death. You know, it just took the wind out of my sails. Uh, and, I, and I was so forward to, to looking yeah. to this character developing. At this point, I'm just a bit too stunned to speculate on, you know, ah, now why, why did O'Brien do this here? What does this play in the larger book? But I, I kept thinking to myself, well, if Bondin's defeat was a bad omen, you know, and, and I can see with his defeat being at the hands of Griffin's men. But for me, is this a really bad omen or is this just what happens in life aboard? An accident, not unexpected yeah. with so many youth playing in these conditions as, as it's been described. You know, I don't know quite what to make of it. I just hate that I'm not going to hear this voice going on and on, you know, perhaps another Reed, another Babington, you know. Uh. Yeah. And I, I think as well, O'Brien knows that some of his most kind of tender moments and most deeply emotional moments have been in the canon so far when he's reflected on successful and then also broken relationships between adults and children. And he just needed to bring us back to this. We've had the story of 
uh, Bridget. We've had the story of the Sweeting Girls. We haven't had the story of you know a, a, a childhood character so close to them aboard ship. So I think it's nice that he's brought us back to this theme. And once again, it's a theme that's running all the way through the canon. I think it's no accident that this was a theme that was important to O'Brien. Yeah. Anyhow, uh, the fog is increasing. We had started out with a fairly clear day, but now the fog is increasing. And it's increasing as the Bellona makes her way across 20 miles of often dangerous water to a place west of St. Matthew, where they're due to meet either the Ramillies or one of its boats and pick up this Brittany pilot, and also a colleague, an intelligence colleague of Stevens, ready for tomorrow night's Dark of the Moon landing, which is to take place in a place called Dogleg Cove. Jack has a very specific plan for how he's going to get to the rendezvous and drop Stephen, but the weather isn't going to allow it. So he has to sail this very disagreeable course. Early in the morning, he has to thread his way through a passage of seven fathoms in some places, knowing that the Bellona draws six fathoms. So a fathom is six feet. So we've got a, a less than two meter clearance between the seabed and the keel of the Bellona. So he's, he's got to hope that the, the height of the waves is less than that. So Jack and Woodbine the Master and Harding continue to work hard with their dead reckoning, estimating where they are, what the effect of the leeway is, what the effect of the tide is, the wind, all the different local currents and their own sense of the sea. And we get a really nice episode here where Jack gets to bring his own very, very finely tuned sense of the sea. They're getting close to St. Matthews and Jack wonders if everybody else is feeling the way he does in the pit of his stomach you know, the, the imminent wicked grind and crack as they strike a reef. He's really, really that anxious about this passage. He asks Woodbine then, do you smell something? And Woodbine says that he doesn't. Despite that, Jack straight away goes with his gut. He backs the main topsail, starts the sheet right forward, brings down the helm, bringing the way off the Bellona as quickly as he can. And in the heavy fog, they hear a voice. What ship is that? And Jack's fine sense of sailing has saved them. It's low tide, and he had been smelling the rotting kelp, the rotting seaweed on the shore. So, but for Jack's instinct, that would have been the end. Yeah, boy. Well, and this this voice in the fog turns out to be the boat from the Romilies, and it you know, brings both of its passengers to the Bologna. And Jack gives the orders to the officer of the watch to set the course south, which should be safe for the next few hours. Tells Woodbine and Harding to go get some sleep. And in the cabin, you know, as he comes in, Stephen asks him if all is well. Stephen hears from Jack that the passengers are all aboard. And he asks Jack, you know, are you going to turn in? And Jack's thinking to himself, well, it's, it's hardly worth it. But, you know, may, maybe I will. But instead of falling off to sleep immediately, as we always know Jack does, he spends the next hour and a half thinking about what he'll write to Gagan's parents. And I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm back with Jack carrying, you know, Gagan into the cabin. I'm here thinking about writing the parents. And this is just really ugh, getting to me here. Yeah, me too. Stephen wakes up the next morning when the hammocks are piped up and Jack comes in all freshly shaved. So here's Jack, you know, no sleep, but looks like a million bucks. And Jack reports that the fog has cleared enough to see 100 yards and that they have barely more than steerage way. And he offers to sharpen Stephen's razor so he can get shaved up before meeting his guest. And Stephen says, no, no, I know Mr. Bernard very well, and I'll wait until Sunday to shave. Uh, and we learn, we had a little bit of background here. Inigo Barnard comes from a Barcelona family of shipbuilders and ship owners who've traded with English merchants for generations. He was educated in England, speaks English perfectly, and like his family, is deeply Catalan. You know, they're bitterly resentful of Spanish oppression, and he's part of a clandestine movement for autonomy or even independence from Spain. Like Stephen, He's decided that the French invasion has you know, required him to now ally himself with anybody opposed to France, including the Spanish government. And because you know, the Spanish never knew about his subversive activities, he was able to join the Spanish intelligence service in an area particularly to do with naval intelligence. So mm. when the Spanish turned around and allied themselves with Napoleon, uh, he's as 
on the unfortunate advice of the Prince of Peace. Let's get back to that in a minute. He was well-placed to pass information to his friend Matron, who he'd met in his days of working for Catalan Independence. He and Stephen continue to work together against France because so often there are people with divided loyalties and even French double agents. So, you know, they're, mm. we, we presume, going ashore in, in pursuit of this. Now, Ian, this Prince of Peace, you know, of course, this had all kinds of, you know, a, a really strong Prince of Peace. Wait a minute. And I think, no, no, it can't mean that. Help, help me out here. Yeah, it, I read this and I think this is either the book of Isaiah or it's um, Handel. But no, it's a reference to a Spanish duke and diplomat, Manuel Godoy, who was given the title Prince of the Peace by King Charles IV of Spain. Now, this title was given to him in recognition of his having negotiated successfully a peace treaty with France in 1795. A year later, he went one better and negotiated a further treaty that brought Spain into war with Great Britain, thereby, in the way that things played out, cutting off Spain from all the economic power that she could have got from the riches of her colonies in the New World. And you might know something about how that turned out. Not so great for Spain in the end. Um, Godoy was exiled after an uprising against his, uh, his patron, King Charles IV, in 1808. Now, we've heard Godoy's name before in the canon. Um, if you go right back to post-captain, towards the end of post-captain, where there's the famous incident of intercepting the Spanish treasure ships, um, Stephen is covertly advising on arguments that the British captain can use to justify why Admiral Bustamante might, with honour, still agree to surrender his treasure ships. And he says, above all, remember, Godoy has betrayed the kingdom to the French. So there you go. A little little hark back to post-captain, the Prince of Peace that we're talking about, is this diplomat who kind of led Spain eventually down a down an unsuccessful path. Boy, doesn't he remind me of of so many politicians? Oh, you know, oh, French, yeah. you've got the Basque. That's okay. You got the Catalans. That's okay. Oh, wait, you're coming towards us. Let's let's talk peace. <laughs> yeah. But well, so uh, you know, Jack and Stephen and Mr. Barnard. They're eating breakfast together rather formally here. You know, Jack's being very discreet. Mr. Barnard's complimenting the captain on the beauty of the ship. And, and you know, Jack takes a hint, leaves the two of them to talk intelligence while he goes to reinforce the ship for this coming blow. And he wants to work with Jan, marking the charts and talking about these waters, you know, really understanding, you know, the bay in general and what's ahead for them as they drop Stephen on this mission. Jan agrees that, in fact, a storm is definitely coming, a big storm, perhaps Thursday, he says, and he compliments Jack on his preventer stays. He's surprised, though, that the French did not try to get out. He says, you know, last night when you were picking me up, the wind was in the northeast for a few hours, and there was plenty of time for a frigate or even a fast ship of the line to come out, neither seen nor known or recognized, a little French tag there. And Jack asks Jan, well, if the fog stays as thick as it is, will you be able to carry the Bologna through the Raz, especially with there being no moonlight? And Jan says, well, you know, I'd rather have a frigate or a sloop, but he says, I can do it because the ebbing tide dashes up so white on the VA, but he insists, you know, the fog is not going to stay as thick as this. And mm. in this VA that he's speaking of, Yes, it's, it's in that same chain of rocky islets where our men is uh, the old lady is what it means. It's a really dramatic lighthouse on a really dramatic outcrop of these really, really uh, dangerous rocks. If you zoom in on cannonade.net, you can see where it is. If you go through to Google Maps places, you can see it also really, really clearly. This is a terrifyingly dangerous part of the seascape. You know, the weather's always terrible. These rocks are really, really dangerous. It's spe- it's spectacular, but not a place where a sailor would want to hang around. Not a place where you'd want to be anything other than 100% sure about your navigation. And what mm. do we have next? We have fog and also darkness. The sun goes down. The fog is not quite as thick as Jack finishes his usual patrolling and tells the men to turn the ship around in silence in the darkness. 
and the blue cutter has been made ready by midshipman Reed, and against strong opposition from some of the more conservative members of the crew and opposition, you might say, from his own heart, Jack had rigged davits, these little mini cranes that you see very often these days on boats and ships, but were regarded by the Royal Navy at the time as a bit of an innovation just here above the quarter galleries. But now, looking across on his innovation, he's glad that he's done it. He's thinking that later on, Stephen and the fully equipped boat are going to have to be lowered down. And the davits mean they can do this without the usual anxiety and anguish of how are we going to get Stephen into a boat without him falling in, drowning or dropping something. Those kind of worries in the past have aged Jack prematurely. So I love this thought that he's finally happy with this little bit of an innovation here. And he's up now in the foretop with the pilot and there's a midshipman down on deck to relay orders. And it's dark in the dark of the evening at 10.30 in the evening. Jan points out where Dead Man's Bay should be if they were in the light. And he says, well into the Raz, we'll see the white water on the Vieille, on this lighthouse, in 10 minutes, if God wishes, he says. He says that he'll be able to pick out the whiteness of the breakers even in the darkness. Jack is watching along as well. He's thinking, I don't see as well as I once did with the battle damage to one of my eyes. And uh, he remembers that he once said, my solitary point in common with Nelson and blushed for it afterwards. Anyhow, it's all okay. Jack's dodgy middle-aged eyes and Jan's very acute eyes both spot the rhythmic whiteness on the VA. They know where they are and they can steer southeast now to come as close as possible to Dogleg Cove. Jack joins Stephen in the cabin. Stephen's playing chess, you know, with his compatriot, Barnard, and Barnard starts to get up. But Jack says, no, no, play, you know, please play on, continue. And after staring for a very long time, Barnard asks if they should call it a draw. And Stephen says, no, no, we'll record the positions. And the text says, with the blessing, we shall play it out another day. You know, and I can't help it. Jan say, you know, if God wishes, we'll do this with the blessing, says Stephen. <laughs> so we're getting all this like, we're going to have to have a little bit of uh, divine intervention to get through all this. But Jack now, kind of with that ominous note in mind, asks Stephen if he has any messages, requests, or letters that he'd like Jack to send. You know, before action, they often exchange wills or letters or messages. Stephen says, not this time. Says, my lawyer, Lawrence, has all the three farthings I have to my name, that is, you know, all the three quarter pennies, you know, I'm broke, don't have to worry about who's going to get the money. And Diana knows my wishes. So Jack says, well, you know what? I know it's early, but you know, you should start getting ready while the sea is still smooth. But having said that, a midshipman comes in to report that there's a light from shore. It's flashing three times and then one time. So apparently they're now at the rendezvous. Their meager baggage was already in the boat says the text. Jack led them across the darkened deck, absurdly hand in hand, helped them into the cutter, and leaning down, grasped Stephen's shoulder with an iron grip by way of farewell. Ha. Huh. Uh, and I don't think Jack knows quite what he's letting Stephen in for here. Um, the boat is lowered down and it shoves off, and Jack calls row dry and gives them orders that will carry the Bellona to her anchorage. And he's feeling really deeply saddened as he goes below. The text says, He had seen Stephen off like this many and many a time, but his grief and anxiety never grew less. As he went, he noticed a dim star or two in the zenith. And by the time the boat rejoined, with Bondon's report that there was a parcel of gents on the beach talking foreign, but right glad to see the doctor, carried him and his mate ashore dry foot, there was a fine sprinkling of them, with Saturn in the middle, and they so clear and sharp that their light showed him not only the now much greater surf breaking on the reef south of the Ile de Seine, but the black, rugged outline of the island itself. End of chapter five. Hmm. Boy, it, my first thought was, you know, we're halfway through the Yellow Admiral and what a churning, turning chapter. Oh, yeah. Smokes. Well put. Churning and turning. Goodness me. Um, we've come a long way since the kind of what you what now seem like quite low key frustrations with the, the Admiral and his kind of chafing displeasure. Um, we're a long way from being worried about 
um, you know, sh- shorebound problems like enclosures and lawsuits. And we've got this desperately sad story about Gagan. We've got Stephen reminding us that he's barely got three farthings to rub together. Um, Jack himself can't buy powder or keep a table. The, this this is actually something of a low point for these characters here. Yeah, it, it really is. They're they're at a bit of a low point. We're traveling in this chapter back and forth across this really treacherous area, hearing about all these disasters in the past, and and in the midst of it, yeah. you know, we meet this wonderful new character. They had this delightful lead up, you know, his magnificent performance in the cabin. You know, and I'm thinking, I, I kind of mentioned this earlier, the scene is set for the next Babington, the next Reed, even better, because this one's Irish. And and in a blink of an eye, Gagan is dead. And after this perilous journey with few things going the way they want them to at first, now we come through the fog only to have Stephen head off for hostile shores with a big blow coming, you know, in any day. And, I'm, you know, I'm thinking, yeah, <laughs> come on, really? <laughs> so it's great I think we got that kind of upbeat that fog clearing even though it's still dark even though people are still in danger we can see the stars we can see the sky we know the sky is important for O'Brien whenever he writes in positive ways about the, the the stars and the heavens that's probably a sign that he wants to make us feel that things are a little bit on the up thank heavens as well for Bondon's cheerful report and he's not showing too many signs of that strange sort of change in mood and change in behavior that we had when he first came aboard after his uh, his boxing match. But then again, Mike, this is Patrick O'Brien. Maybe we're reading too much into these little optimistic upbeats. Maybe we're wrong to have this hope. It, it's been a brilliant chapter, though. Like we said, we, we love the use of the music. We love the way that it underscored the story of Gagan, even though that's such a bittersweet thing. And that moment... And that music might be something that if there's somebody out there working on a TV miniseries or a movie production of the works of Patrick O'Brien, that sounds like a very, very great moment to render for us on the screen. Yeah. So, so incredibly true. We have, you know, Ian, you kind of mentioned this, we were talking earlier, this great sleight of hand kind of in this chapter here, you know, all this focus on the treacherous killing seas, you know, Stephen's dangerous mission being landed ashore at night all kind of undercut by Gagan's story. You know, a death that occurs in beautiful weather on calm seas, not in battle, not on intrigue ashore. I'm just hoping now that the concern over Stephen's mission is indeed a sleight of hand and not yet more danger to come. Oh my gosh. Mike, there's only one way for us to be sure about this. What do you say next time to just a little bit more Patrick O'Brien? with all my heart. Barnard comes from a Barcelona. Sorry, comes from a Barcelona. <laughs> there you go. Sir. Comes Barcelona. from a Barcelona uh-huh. family. Yeah, Barcelona. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. Comes from a Barcelona family of shipbuilders and ship owners who trade.